Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Possibly. Um, I'm actually, it's funny, like this podcast, I said it's reviving, like at two o'clock I'm doing another podcast oh, really? with the Deconstructionists. Have you seen those guys mm-hmm. online? They're kind of new, they're young guys, but I think they'll be good. It's a good name for a podcast, I yeah, think, and yeah, they've yeah. got a good graphic and it's a golden age, but now it's going to it's gonna start cutting yeah. off. Like the, the bad podcasts are going to start getting knocked. That's why it's great. You've been doing this for a while. You'll be, you know, like the ones who are new. I don't think they're going to last that long, but these guys I think are pretty good, and they just did Rob Bell as well. But uh, yeah. Connor's now doing a four four o'clock podcast. Yeah, it seems like there's just tons of podcasts. So when I started, the amount of podcasts that were out there substantially less than there are right now. I think part of it just like it's so easy to start a podcast at this point. Yeah, I know. So everyone can do it, and and actually for writers, everybody wants to do them now mm-hmm. um, because it's great promotion. If you just got a book out. You want to, you know, promote your book. So it's again, it's like a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Someone wants yeah, that, and yeah. it's a good. Geez, it's a, a lot of people are going. Like, I just want to talk to these people who I've read and I like. So let's sit down and have a conversation for an hour, and yeah. then bam, it happens. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it is. I I just wanted to talk to people, and yeah. it just I never thought it kind of grow to what it is now. It was weird because I didn't think that I would get to talk to the people that I really wanted to talk to, and then I realized, oh, you do enough of these, and then eventually yeah. it happens, and now. It's not a weird thing for you to get an email saying, hey, would you talk to me for 45 minutes or an hour about your book? Not at all. It's just normal. The only thing I'm watching out for now is occasionally is I listen to the podcast now because I did a podcast recently and the guy was dead at all, but he just wasn't a good interviewer or anything. And so it just doesn't go well. And then you're like, that's just a terrible hour. So yeah, all you do is just have a listen, see if they're a good interviewer. And if they're a good interviewer, seem nice. Yeah, you just do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's... Uh, but it's great for someone like you as well because you build up a platform and like in terms of you know you writing, yeah. you speaking, you doing stuff. You've kind of got this whole platform now that of people who will will listen. Or if you're going if you're going somewhere in the country to do a talk or an event, you've you've got an entire listenership who'll back you up. So this yeah. is kind of needed for. Yeah, it, I mean it's great. There's definitely like a nice secondary benefit to to that people. I, I get to know people want to talk to me about <clears throat> stuff that I've talked to other people about and that's really cool and but I had no interest in doing like building a platform like I didn't have like this aspiration of I, I want to write and I'm working on trying to to write right now but it's never been I'm doing this for that it's always just I really just enjoy doing it and it's cool to see the other stuff that come with it yeah absolutely but it's fun um, by the way, this, because this chair is quite low and the table's high, is that going to pick up well enough? Do you want me to do Yeah, I mean, you probably sound better if you did that. You yeah, can just spin that, this yeah. part right here, and you can raise this. See this part? It goes up and down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Let's see what feels right. Yeah, I mean, you that just, feels... You just do your thing. Yeah. If you want to put headphones on, those are there. You can. You don't have to if you don't want to. Um, kind yeah, of like, I'm, I'm good with that, actually. Sometimes you can, because I hear myself, it sounds a bit weirder. Yeah. You know what's funny? Rob didn't want to put them on either. Yeah. And now, like, two in a row, don't want to wear headphones. It's cool. That's it. Yeah. We're, it, pr- we're pros. Yeah, you look <laughs> at that. That's the pro thing to do. Oh, you know what? I'm going to get a glass of water. Do your thing. All right. Let's do this thing. You ready to go? <clears throat> One of the things that I ripped off from Pete Holmes is that, you like, you just have the 
thing rolling the whole time. I was about to say that, by the way. I was about to say the big tip I learned from all the people who have ever done podcasts with me is Pete Holmes just has the thing rolling and you just start talking and it's not like, and now we begin and you freeze up and yeah. there you go. So you're doing It's like that. we're doing that we're already. just rolling. Yeah, I, I did. Brilliant. I got to interview Pete because I know you're on his podcast and yeah. you were, it was great on that. Yeah, well, that was You my, were great. That, he was such a good interviewer. You know, he's like, he just makes you feel at home. I didn't know anything about him really at the time. And uh, he really brought out the best in me. And I think he brings out the best in people. So. Yeah, he was, he was. And so I got to interview him. He did a show in Dallas, uh, for whatever comedians call it shows. They should. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. A show. And I got to interview him afterwards. And he was, I, I tried to do the same thing he did. And he was like, oh, yeah, this is what all the cool people do. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yep. Just I'll start do that. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things that I'm very excited about is my dad is here with me. And he is, as we already talked about, he's a huge fan of yours. So. I feel embarrassed. Oh my goodness! And, and honored, and humbled, yeah. and proud, all at the same time. And you yeah. also said everything you know about Sigmund Freud before we started conversing with my dad. Like, just hey, let's Freud it up right now. And you guys did the whole psychology thing. That yeah, that cool. would have been a good thing to capture on. I know I tried to, but mic. I wasn't set up. I wasn't ready to go. Yeah, but you know we can start now, and that's cool. So when we did, um, you did a thing for me and a bunch of like a dozen preachers a year and a half ago, two years ago. In Malibu, and there was an older gentleman there who was, uh, I don't want to say older, but he's like my dad's age. He's a guy named Randy Harris. He's like, in my denomination, the like mixture of like Richard Rohr and you kind of like together. Do you remember him? He was sitting, I do, yeah. He, he didn't smile a whole lot, but he really was very excited because like five years before, we were in Tennessee at something, and someone asked about your book, um, How Not to Speak About God. Yeah, that's so, close enough. It's probably like, what was How the not to speak of God. Everyone in America says, how not to speak about God. So I'm wondering whether I should have made it, how not to speak about God. Mm -hmm. But it was a, a play on a, a, an essay that Derrida wrote. So how not to speak of God. Hmm. Just in case you're beside your computer and you're and typing it into buy 10 copies. Yeah. I wouldn't want you to get the title don't wrong. Don't get that wrong. Yeah, don't get that wrong. <laughs> and my listeners are going to make fun of me because I always get book titles wrong. Uh, which yeah. is really good since I talk about books and their titles so that's really good but uh that book had come out was like seven eight nine years ago yeah it must be by now about eight or nine years ago okay so i'm talking to randy harris the church of christ richard Rohr, pete rollins mixture and he said one of the people that i would love to meet and get to know pete rollins he said i really love his work i respect it it's great and so that's when i really got introduced to the pete rollins experience Wow, and your life has never been the same again. It really cursed. hasn't. Yeah, it's cursed. Which is part of it, like you, you say, it's like cursed, but you live in L.A., you moved over from Belfast, and it's kind of like L.A. is kind of sunny, bright. You've got oranges growing in your backyard Don't right now. Don't tell people. Let people think I am in a dark basement no. with no light. No, Don't it, tell people. It's a it's, very well-lit place. Yeah. I don't. Is this going to kind of steal your mojo? Well, you know, my living room's pretty dark. There's no, not, no light gets into the living There's room. There's a big, big TV there, though. There is, yes. That's just so as I can watch philosophy lectures <laughs> on the big screen, you know. <laughs> I'm worried. I'm worried because this is just everyone's nice. The weather's beautiful. The sun shines. The beaches are clean. The, the, the sand is soft. I mean, mm -hmm. like, uh, existential angst is hard to do in LA. It's really going to be tough. Uh, well, although, actually, the truth is, uh, as we've... Um, I've talked about before, but actually, for all of those reasons, it seems to be even worse here. There's this obsessive kind of, you feel it everywhere you go, this kind of sense in which I should be happy. 
I should look better. I should I should be having more fun, hanging out with more people. If you sit in on Friday night, there's this tyranny of of a voice saying, You should be out having a laugh. You should be having more fun. This is the tyranny of happiness. Yeah. This this super ego voice that's not telling you you should be nicer to your mum, but telling you that you should have more stuff, be fulfilling your dreams. Look at you sitting doing nothing, you know? So that that is like palpable in LA. Palpable. Really? Just feel it. Yeah, you feel it like every well. It's, I mean, I feel it in the sense that I'm sitting in a coffee shop and everyone looks cooler than me and better looking than me and looks like they're having a better life than me. But from talking to people, it seems like that's kind of what a lot of people feel. That you know, like even when you meet people and you're talking about what they do, uh, it's very natural for people to say, for example, they're an actor. Uh, whenever you know they're doing some acting, but really. Uh, they're they're making their living from working in a coffee shop or something like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but what's interesting is the this, the sense in which that can't be said. You know, like back home, if you're working in a coffee shop, you're like, oh yeah, I'm working in a coffee shop, but like, you know, what I really love is, mm-hmm. you know, making music. But here, there seems to be more of a temptation for people to say, oh, you know, I'm an actor or I'm a, I'm, I'm in a band, um, like as if as if you know the dif- you know the difficult things in life of having a you know work crappy job sometimes um, is something that you have to hide hmm. it doesn't fit with the narrative um, so so there's a lot of a lot of suffering in this beautiful place do you think it's just trying to keep up with all the beautiful successful people that makes the normal people go uh, I've got to put on a front so that I can pretend to be as whatever is them absolutely and, and the thing is even if you know you are one of those people who has worked hard or have been very lucky to look a certain way mm-hmm. um strangely it doesn't seem to work for those people either um there's this actual freudian idea we we're talking about freud earlier um before this podcast but freud says the more you try to feed this this voice that says you know you should look better you should be more beautiful you should be more this or more that the irony is the more you feed it, the more demanding it becomes. Just like the more you eat, the more you know your stomach grows and you want to eat more. There's no way to satisfy this voice. So you'll meet someone who, to all intents and purposes, has everything you think would like make you happy. They look beautiful, they've got a cool job. But strangely, they think they look ugly. They think they need to lose more weight. They think they have to change something. And uh, so, yeah, you can't even, even the losers lose, but even the winners lose. Well, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of like chemotherapy in some ways. Like you try to like kill uh, off unhealthy stuff and that's like really good news for Christianity. Like you give, you, you try to kill off this or, or religion in general. Like if you, if you get to whatever this is, um, it'll make you whole and happy and complete. But I feel like that's also good news for everyone, like yeah. the, and especially right here, because there's a sense that if, if I got to that place, then, then I'd be better off. Absolutely. I mean, th- this is why I've taken an increasing interest in Burning Man, which I have to confess I haven't been at yet. Okay, I, I, I want to go this year. If anyone on the podcast can help make that happen, mm-hmm. that would be great. I, I, would, I would prefer to do the, what do they call it? Um, the glam. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they had like the big RVs the, and yeah. the multi-million. Yeah. But it's terrible because that they're all looked down on. But you know what? Having a shower and air conditioning sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm willing to do the tent and have the real experience. But I, I was talking to someone who goes to Burning Man actually just two days ago. It was around in my house. And he was saying uh, what I'd heard, but I looked this up this morning. I can't find whether it's true or not. So um, this is just the rumor. But the rumor is that uh, Burning Man 
was started by a guy in San Francisco. That bit's true. Uh, but he, he went through a breakup. Uh, his wife left him and he was just incredibly devastated, broken uh, for four years. He just couldn't get over this. He couldn't move on in his life. So a few of his friends brought him to this beach one night and they killed him because they were so annoyed to know each other. Because he was always whining. He just, they just thought, we're going to have to kill this guy. We've yeah. all been there. With yeah. friend. We've, all, like, been ah, there. We've all been there. We've all been there. I think that was probably what they, they thought about doing, mm-hmm. but they decided to go a different route. And they built an effigy and they burned this effigy. It was a, it was a man and a dog. Um, and this effigy was symbolic I don't think so much of the relationship, but it was symbolic of this loss. So this guy had spent four years trying to run from this loss and he couldn't. He just compulsively returned to it. And that's what happens to many of us when we've had a trauma. It's called, uh, you know, compulsive repetition. You just keep repeating. You keep coming back to the same subject matter. You can't move on. If any of you know someone who's deeply traumatized or depressed, you, there'll be some subject they just can't move on from. They keep saying it. They keep coming back to it. So eventually, they have this bonfire on the beach. And it symbolizes this loss. And he feels a kind of healing from that. And they do it again, and they do it again. And now I think it's like 80,000 people in the desert burning these incredible effigies. The community has gathered together Around, not so much a shared loss because he'd already had the loss that's the key okay the, the relationship was already over so the loss had happened it was being able to symbolize that loss and being able to remember it and and move on from it because we can either have rituals that help us avoid confronting our traumas and that's what we do when we're kids. I mean, we, we think of like, uh, you know, whether it's arranging our teddy bears, whether it's not walking on the cracks. We arrange lots of little rituals that help us avoid anxiety. But part of life is finding rituals that help us look at it. So you might actually get a child to draw a picture of how they're feeling and that ritual. And you can ask them, what, you know, what do, what do these mean in, in, the, in the painting? Mm-hmm. And that can help draw that out. So all of this to say that it's interesting to me that on the west coast of America, uh, Burning Man has grew, and it grew from someone who was courageous enough to say, "I need to face this loss rather than run from it, and I need to find rituals that help uncover that." And I think it's successful because that touches something universal. I think something universal about what it means to be a human being, and it very much touches on on what I'm trying to do in my in my work do you see other examples of rituals that help people um deal with the loss grieve the loss health in in a healthy way and move forward from the loss besides burning man absolutely i think you know these rituals exist in in multiple ways and even if you take one of the central uh rituals or sacraments in christianity is the eucharist and one way of reading this is it's a meal that where we share a loss you know, it's a, you do this in remembrance mm. of me. So it's, it, you know, if, if you take radical theology seriously, it's, it's in a sense a meal where you gather together around the loss of God. But interestingly, there's a second bit of that. You know, you do this and I am with you always to the end of the world. That there's a strange sense in which when you're able to gather around a loss, say, say you've lost your mother and you, you're able to remember her you're able to 
sit with others and tell stories and, and, and reminisce, there's a sense in which she is with you. But when you try to forget it and walk away from it, um, you, you try to avoid that. It causes all manner of problems. So that's a, that's a ritual. It's not it's not thought of in that way sometimes within Christianity, but I think actually it, it's it's a type of ritual. In fact, I even every year I bring fifty people to Belfast for a festival. It's called Wake, mm-hmm. and Wake is basically um, a celebration that happens around a death. I think it's an Irish thing, but I, I I don't know if that word's used elsewhere. But you know, you watch over the body, so you look at the body, um, and then that night. You drink together, you celebrate their life, you tell stories. And the idea is that awake, although it's about death, so it's depressing, it's actually about finding joy and meaning through the act of facing that death. And in doing that, the dead person is in some way always with you. Uh, For me, wake, the reason why I do it is there's some people who we all experience loss from when we're a child the loss of just our mother in a sense of like we're no longer at one just you know suckling at the mother's breast type thing where we're we're having to to move on in our own lives in when we we experience that separation or if our father's always working for example we create rituals that help hide that but part of as i say part of growing up is finding ways of facing that loss um so for me in a sense doubt uh, a, a sense of a lack of meaning, guilt. These are all senses in which loss uh, manifests in our bodies. And we conspire with religion. We conspire with consumerism. We conspire with the new age, with drugs, with fame. We conspire with all manner of things, with politics, to cover over that, to hide ourselves from it. Wake is about bringing people who acknowledge they've done that in their lives and are trying to move beyond it. And also for those people who have done that, but want a place where they can remember, they can continue once a year to gather around that, that sense of going, yeah, there's, there's something central about being human, which involves loss, doubt, unknowing, ambiguity, a sense of, a sense of loss of oneness that, that happens when we're very, very young. And actually what we need to do is face it together rather than move rather than try to avoid it. Hmm. What do you think the significance of dealing with those things together is? Why do you think 80,000 people don't make their Mecca to Burning Man on their own, you know, at a different time of year and they do their own thing privately? Or why is there significance of people doing that collectively? Oh, yeah, that's a good question because I think that's so important. And sadly, the very point when you, if you're, say, in a church, Sometimes the very point when you're starting to go, actually, you know what, I, I do have doubts and I have kind of fears and anxiety and I've maybe used my religion to try to cover over that. At the very point that you're, you're starting to think like that is often the point when you become a threat to the community and you're asked to leave. It's the very point when you become isolated and on your own. To be honest, that's the very point that you need a community. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is you can't really do this on your own because you need rituals. You need to speak. You need to, you need to be able to bring things to light. Um, you know, if you're carrying it, it's like a rock inside you. It's like this black hole. Um, you need singer-songwriters. You need comedians. You need poets. Uh, you need a good bar where you sit around and have a drink and talk or a good coffee shop. Um, 
the in order to be able to begin to shed light on that black hole uh you need people to to who accept you unconditionally uh, who are ready to listen to you and to and to not push you into talking but to say like anytime you need to talk i'm there uh, we're communal beings um, as well so there's 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 a sense in which um you know isolation is just gonna you know breed uh, more pain and more suffering so yeah i think i think it's very important for us to do this in community mm -hmm. um and uh, that's why i'm a i'm a believer in community in fact most of my work when i go speaking places it, people don't come mostly because they're going to hear me say something new this is the age of the internet i do a talk five minutes later it's online you can listen to it on your own yeah, in your true. house in your bed but people everywhere i go there's at least a few people who have traveled sometimes five sometimes ten sometimes more hours just to be in the room you go why and it's usually because they just want to be in a room where they feel that other people have experienced something similar to them or on that similar journey to them they feel so isolated that they're willing to drive 10 hours just for an hour of sitting together with other people so they can go i'm not alone i'm not alone that de that definitely seems like one of the big existential crises that everyone wrestles with is like am i alone in this like am yeah. i feeling this way when I, my doubts my questions and one of the things that I appreciate about your work and I seem to circle back to every year around this time is when Good Friday shows up. Mm -hmm. And you know, some of your work has helped me to see the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as an experience in which the divine experiences the absence of the divine. Mm -hmm. And so Good Friday for you know, people coming from my, <clears throat> uh, my background, my heritage, it's typically, oh, this is what your sin caused and your sin caused God to have to do this. And uh, okay, fine, but I think the deeper meaning is, you know, God experiences the absence of God, and that is something that we can all, like, we we connect to one another in the fact that this is part of the human experience that even Jesus went through. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I in a lot of my work, I've made that cry um, central, uh, you know, existentially central, so philosophically central. So what I mean by that is, um, I see it as if we take seriously this cry, this experience, uh, it's not simply a little blip. You know, you feel this loss of God and then you get it back. So the, the whole idea is, okay, you, you experience a day of darkness, a moment of the dark night of the soul, and then oh, you get back what you lost. God's there, you lose God and God comes back. So, you know, you go, oh, well, we all experience that cry in our own lives in some way that's one way of reading it the other way of reading it is this cry signifies a very different type of relationship with the sacred with god with the absolute uh, that it's not just a business as usual you kind of sense this loss of god and then go, this god returns and what i mean by that is i argue that uh christianity but actually this works beyond christianity um, is about the loss of a particular understanding of God, the type of God who fixes everything, who fills up the lack, who helps us run from our suffering, who, who gives us an answer to our problems. Whenever we don't know why something has happened, God is the answer. God is the one who helps us sleep at night. 
This God, Paul Tillich called half blasphemous and superstitious. Mm. Uh, Bonhoeffer called it the deus ex machina God, the God who's just this little thing we rule into existence in order to explain stuff. And what I argue is that Christianity is helping free us from that idolatrous notion of God. And by the way, the secular version of that is fame will make me happy, money will make me happy, a relationship will make me happy. The religious version, Jesus will make me happy. If I pray enough, I'll be satisfied. If I read enough apologetics, I'll know the answers. All the same. In Christianity, they say that, that God is understood not as a sacred object that we love, but rather as the depth dimension we experience in the act of love itself. So you lose God as an object that you're trying to grasp. That's an idol anyway, so you lose nothing. <laughs> but we, we lose that understanding and we experience faith, the real depth of faith, as inviting us into a form of life in which we give ourselves wholly to one another, wholly to the world. We embrace the beauty of real wine and real bread, real water, that, that the religious symbols of, of sacramental wine is there to help us appreciate real sustenance, to, to look out for our neighbor. And in this act of giving ourselves to one another, we strangely find ourselves in the very heart of the divine, standing side by side with the prophets, standing in the very depth of the heart of the Christian message. And that's why Bonhoeffer says, to live as though God is not given is to live fully before God and with God. He means to live as if God is not some object that we can grasp hold of, but just giving ourselves to each other in love, we find ourselves standing in the very field of the divine. Um, and the reason why I say it like that um, is because the good news that there's some sacred object, some God out there who will make it all good is bad news the bad news of my goodness we just have to embrace this lack and love one another turns out to be profoundly good news and Bonhoeffer had a name for it he called it religionless Christianity hmm. that's good so the joke at the beginning is you know you're always depressed and you're telling us to deal with the, the darkness and it's as though like you know every book is like this ominous beacon of you know negativity but i think ultimately what you push through is the option out there that you know religion often offers you is something that will disappoint you but if you move past that then you can actually be present where you are and that's actually how you experience gratitude and joy in the moment so you're kind of good news yeah yeah that's good i mean this is this thing like it, it it's you know you'll never you'll never read this in the bible right but it's the kind of idea that if you want to find your life you have to lose it but if you try to find your life you know you lose it i and heard this, someone say something like that yeah once. i think i came up with it actually oh okay uh, yeah, in, 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 i think it was my first book okay um, but you know the, the, the idea behind this is if if you try to lose your life because you go oh that's the way to find it Mm. doesn't work because <laughs> mm. because the, the loss is still an economic exchange mm -hmm. oh yeah I'll, I'll sacrifice in order to get something like someone who gives to the poor because they hear that if you do that you know god will love them more mm -hmm. or you know they'll satisfy the, the love of their parents that's still a good thing to do you're giving some money to the poor but it's not an ethical act you know it's it, sometimes people say to me you know, what is an ethical act and the, i think the more basic question is well, before we get to what an ethical act is, 
we have to just understand what being in the dimension of the ethical means. And what I mean by that is, if you if someone puts a gun to your head and says like, "Be nice to your mum," that's not an ethical act. You're kind of doing it to survive. Um, or if someone's if you say to your kids, "You apologize to your brother," um, uh, or you're not getting any dinner, or if you apologize, we'll give you a treat. And that's that's a that's a, a shrewd investment for the child. That's an economic exchange. The the hope is, and by the way, then when we grow up, that external authority becomes internal. So we often continue to do things because there's an internal voice saying, if you do that, um, you know, you'll please God or you'll please your your family. The truly ethical act is whenever you do something, not for some external reward or through fear of some external punishment, but you kind of do it because it's the same. It's like your heart beating or a bird singing. It's just, it's just part of who you are. This is where you do you can do ethical acts and also unethical acts but it's 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 the point when you are taking responsibility you know for your life um so why am i saying that what was the question i don't know what that question was that led to that but it was a great answer yeah oh wow can you remember what the The question question was yeah the question originally was the statement really was you know you're not really pointing for doom and gloom you're trying to say that if we get stuck you gotta know Yes, the, oh, you lose your life, find your life. That yeah. was it. Okay, we're good. Mm. you know, obviously this will all be cut out. So I looked like really yeah, pro, of course, yeah. like as if like you know, so smooth. Like mm. I knew all of this stuff, and my good. voice will sound like uh, really deep and smooth as well too. Good job, yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah. So the this um, in terms of oh yeah, so if you're if you're losing your life because you'll get it back, that's it. You know, it's a shrewd investment. But if you just and this takes a lot of effort. I mean, who, who does this, you know? But there are little moments when you just do something because in the moment, you're inspired to do it. And you're not thinking about rewards and punishments. A teacher just spends a little bit more time with a student after class. And they're not thinking about whether they're getting paid for it. They're not putting in their overtime. Just just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, this is a gift. Um, and, and so... In a sense, I'm saying you've got to lose. You've got to really lose your life, and you've got to get rid of this economic understanding of life. You've got to stop pursuing things that will make you whole and complete. But somehow, in doing that, um, you learn to be. You learn to be. You, you give up something, but you realize that the giving up of something is not a loss at all. It's actually a pure gain. So what I'm saying is this: you sacrifice something, which is actually a sacrifice of nothing. The sacrifice of nothing good at all. It seems like a sacrifice at the time, but it's a sacrifice that just brings you into some deeper, more beautiful form of life. Mm-hmm. It's a sacrifice that is pure gain. Have Have you seen examples of people who have tried to go this direction where they give up the, like this exchange economy, like I'm going to do the right thing because I'm going to get the right thing back to me and just started to go this direction? Uh, like I'm just trying to think of a listener who's trying to go, okay, what exactly does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this this brings you to kind of uh, one of my favorite philosophers in many ways, or has has been an influence is Derrida, because uh, Derrida has this beautiful reflection where he says, "Well, what is a, what is a pure gift? Not an economic exchange. What's a pure gift?" Mm-hmm. And he he kind of goes through three phases. He says, "Well, if you give a gift to somebody, there's all of that thing where they really like you and go, oh, like thanks very much. So you get some return for that." You buy birthday presents and, and you get selfishly something in return. So he says, well, what about a gift where you do it anonymously? 
So you give something, you post it through someone's door, you run away from the, you knock the door, put some groceries down and run away. Because that's nicer because you, then you're not getting them thinking you're brilliant. But, says, but then you can, you know that they're really happy and you're getting this kind of sense in which, oh, you've helped them out. They, they think there's somebody out there who's great. So he says, what about a gift where they don't even think they've been given anything? So then you can't get the enjoyment of them knowing that, you know, they're really happy. What's that look like? Well, the gift of forgiveness, for example, if I forgive you for something, but I don't tell you I've forgiven you, I just forgive you. That's a gift that you don't even know you've received. But of course, I can then go, hey, look at me, I'm great. I just forgave them. So Derrida says, is there such a thing as a gift where you uh, you don't give something, or where the other doesn't know that that they've received it you don't give anything and you don't even know you've given it <laughs> that would be the perfect gift because then there's no economy it's just a pure gift and it's like that's ridiculous but but then you go well i suppose actually they happen all the time but you can never see them by definition because as soon as you grasp it you, mm. it's in the realm of economy so it is those little moments where without thinking you you give some money to somebody without thinking you you uh you look out for your neighbor bake them something whenever they're in in struggling and so the world is full of these gifts but they're always under the radar it's this conspiracy that you can never quite see it's always happening just outside your vision just at the edge and as soon as you look around to see the gift oh it's not there and and you know that's that's the realm of the gift so next uh next valentine's day when i forget to give my wife anything i'm just going to play her that response and say you know i don't want you to have to feel grateful and i don't want to you know <laughs> do you think that will work yeah well see there's a difference between silence and silence <laughs> there's, yeah there's the silence of not forgetting something and the silence mm. is pregnant yeah so <laughs> okay well my wife's not pregnant, so we're not going to do that. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, what do you want to talk about now? Okay, let's talk about um, doubt. Obviously, that's a big part of your work, encouraging people to embrace the doubt. Uh, your last book, I think the title was The Divine Magician. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's right. Exactly right? That's exactly right. Chalk one up for me. Mm -hmm. Got it right. So there's a line there about sin is the things that numb us from pain or even numb us from our doubts. And I thought, wow, that's interesting that sin can be something that prevents you from dealing with your doubts. Why do you think it's so unhealthy to not deal with doubts? Because some of us want to just like push our doubts to the side and say, no, I'm a person of faith. And I'm going to say, well, maybe that's in the back of my head. <clears throat> but if I pray enough, that'll go away. And I don't, I don't want to like bring that to the surface. Why do you think that's so unhealthy? Um, yeah, well, it's partly like what I was saying earlier where this, this guy who starts burning man he already has had the loss the mm -hmm. loss already is there um what he hasn't done is find a way to come to terms with that and so we find ways to do that through this burning mm -hmm. of an effigy in the same way i'm going like it's not that one should doubt have questions uh, look at the universe and think you know is have i got it right uh, in a sense that's already going on that already is there part of being human is to to experience other views other perspectives so you think everyone has doubts regardless if they're willing to bring it from the surface pretty much there is an exception to that and in terms of i think some forms of psychosis where where um uh you know i think someone can have a sense of absolute certainty and and that's a real challenge so if if you suffer from absolute certainty it's very difficult like for somebody who's psychotic they maybe hear voices and those voices are these demands 
that that you have you know and it can be it can sound crazy to somebody 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 might say listen i just i can't i think that the fbi are after me um i think that there's certain foods i can't eat because i think they're poisonous and you know it can be funny oh that's crazy but actually it's not as terrifying and it's they can't doubt so you think uh, um, if you are a, a well-adjusted, uh, non-psychotic person, you're going to have doubts? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. If, you, if you're a healthy neurotic, <laughs> um, which most people are, <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's by definition a certain sense of, of, of having doubts, which, by the way, is sometimes evidenced in the opposite, which is called reaction formation, where sometimes the, when someone isn't able to deal with something, they very vehemently go the other direction so for example if someone's obsessively saying they're happy i'm so happy i'm so happy or on facebook they're always saying they're happy yeah, yeah, and lots yeah, of things yeah. are happy that often is a reaction formation that's covering over a sadness but you see this often with doubt with apologetics if someone is obsessed with apologetics and i don't mean they like to read the odd apologetic book but if they're like reading everything by c.s lewis and josh mcdowell and william lee and craig and they're they're just up you know they're they've got josh mcdowell memorized back to front evidence mm -hmm. that demands a verdict all Chase three volumes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, they, if they're obsessed that 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 can often not always but kind of can often be a sign that actually they have lots of doubts and they just haven't been able to face them hmm. so what seems like absolute certainty like why would this person spend all their time reading apologetics if they had doubts they they, they they must be so certain is actually because there's a part of them they haven't been able to make peace with a part of them that's asking questions and so all of this apologetics isn't really so they can argue with me or with somebody else it's so that they can argue with that little bit of themselves or keep that little bit of themselves under control Hmm. And so my work is about saying that the, the, the doubt becomes oh great a, a, a type of symptom, um, or the sorry the the apologetics the certainty is a symptom that says there is doubt in the body, and and actually, in order for that body to become healthy, that doubt needs to come to the surface. Hmm. Did you yeah. have something? Yes, I wasn't really gonna try to ask any questions, but oh, you've just pulled me in. This has been so powerful. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the strength, the courage to face doubt and uncertainty. What's the source? Where do we get it? We hear, again, you talking about that we want to become numb, that we want to avoid these things. Uh, reaction formation is a defense mechanism to protect us. So where's the courage to be able to go beyond sleepwalking? Yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting you use the word courage because I think that's key. Paul Tillich, uh, I'm sure you know, you know, wrote the, this book, The Courage to Be, yes. which is a beautiful book. And, and part of what he argues is the courage to be, which is the courage to embrace your existence, involves the courage to face non-being, to, to embrace lack, to embrace our losses, our uncertainties and our doubts. So interestingly, the courage to exist and to affirm our existence and say amen to our existence is intimately connected with the courage to embrace our finitude and our unknowing and to look at our anxieties rather than run from them. Uh, but how to get that? I mean, it's incredibly difficult. That's why I think the role of the church in many ways, or, um, at its best, is not to provide ways of covering over the lack. Uh, which is is what you know if you if you do use the analogy of parents with a child, where you're always 
you're always giving into the child who doesn't want to walk on the cracks, who wants the story read to them at the same time. That's beautiful and you do that. But as a loving parent, there comes a point when you have to ask what's going on underneath that. Ideally, I want to see communities find rituals that very subtly help people begin to look at what's going on beneath the surface. And so it's like, it's so hard for us to do. I, I hate to say, oh, you have to have courage to embrace your non-being. That none of us do. My goodness, I don't want to do that. So well, that's why we need artists and, and psychologists and, and poets um, because they provide ways for us to very subtly begin to look at the doubts and the unknowing in a way that we can handle so that we can f more readily embrace life. That's why I'm actually getting a little pin designed called the Happy Reaper. Because you know you've got a grim reaper, and the reaper is a is a sign of death, which is the ultimate loss. Yeah. Death is the ultimate non-being, um, and it's always grim. But actually, a happy reaper is the idea that 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 this this these losses that we have can become a site of of happiness and transformation. Not because we say oh, they're great, but simply because somehow we're able to affirm life in the midst of those losses. And then, in a strange sense, what Derrida would say is they become gifts. They become a gift. This is why um, Lacan very cleverly uses the word symptom. And symptom is a sign of suffering. It's the place where, you know, the, the problem that we have manifests in some aggressive way in society and individuals. But he says, if we listen to the symptom, he says it becomes a synthom. So he slightly spells it slightly differently. And synthom in French sounds like sanhom, which means holy man. He says, if you're able to listen to your symptoms and let them speak, they become holy. They become prophets calling you to a, a different form of life. And if you don't heed the prophet, generally disaster <laughs> results. But if you heed the prophet, um, often that brings healing and transformation uh, in your life. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to do. But, um, yeah, th that's why we need we need help and we need community uh, so that's the importance of people who are encouraging people to do this modeling for them helping them and, and I like how you're, <clears throat> how you're talking about dealing with the uh, you, know, you, you deal with the doubt you don't run from it you talked about uh, in the divine magis magician about how typically when someone has like a bad belief we typically want to correct belief and like replace bad belief and just put good belief in there instead and what I felt like you were asking us to do is why don't we just stop and ask why that belief was there in the first place and how it was functioning in that person's life. Can you explain what it means like look into how a bad belief is functioning? Yeah, because belief's a funny old thing. You can, you know, if you're a hypochondriac and you think that you've got some rare disease, rare tropical disease, you know, that's kind of a crazy belief. You believe that you've got a rare tropical disease, but then imagine that crazily you actually end up having it. Um, then it's great because you look normal. At least, <laughs> at least you know, we go like, I've still got the tropical disease, but at least I don't look crazy. But the belief is actually still functioning in a hypochondriac way, in a phobic way. Um, it just now is justified. Uh, and in the same way, you can have a belief that in the earth is flat. And we can all look at that and go, well, that belief is a type of defense mechanism. There's something going on there. You know, there's a belief, but it's functioning. It's, it's hiding something. But also then you could have someone have a, a certain belief about the physical world that is incredibly reasonable. And we go, oh, that's a good belief. 
but it could be functioning in the same way as the flat earth belief <laughs> but it just is a good belief so if you think of it like if someone goes into science and they're a brilliant scientist and they're really making great impact on the world but they actually became a scientist because they they weren't able to look at <clears throat> some crisis in their own life the only place that they felt at home was in some scientific journal it was their way of avoiding looking at the difficult things in their family it was their way of avoiding looking at the difficult things in their life then even though that's a great thing they're doing and the beliefs they have are good the beliefs are still functioning in a in a, in a problematic way so my my work is less about going like i want to correct your beliefs but rather ask how do your beliefs function do your beliefs help you become a more human more beautiful person a more loving and kind individual do they help you create more healthy communities and a more healthy society so there's a lot there's a political dimension to this or do your beliefs cover over these things and and why is that wrong i think for a couple of reasons one is because they never it never fully works you never fully cover over the, your losses and your lacks they come back and two because when you do it your violence explodes elsewhere you create scapegoats uh you you know when things aren't going well in your life <clears throat> you either take responsibility for it or you say it's because of them it's because of immigrants let's build a wall they're the problem you know that you you put your own lack onto somebody else <clears throat> i'm sorry so all of this to say um you know we either are able to make peace with this part of ourselves or or it causes violence and destruction yeah. so the i believe it's the existentialists who talk about bad faith and so part of the idea and dad you can correct me if i'm wrong in this but so say for example uh i believe that i need to become a psychologist to make my dad proud of me okay mm. that's just a hypothetical it's not anything that i could ever imagine possibly yeah. in the case and so i do that to win his approval yes well I decide eventually, hmm, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. It's making me sad, making me unhappy because it's not working. But I still have the belief that since I'm not going to be a psychologist, that I'm never going to make him proud. And so like that, bad, does that make sense? Like the yeah. bad faith idea? How, like, how do we deal with that sort of like, um, that sort of dysfunctional faith in our life? Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is, you know, very key to a psychoanalytic theory, which is, the idea that that even if you're able to you know you're, you're trying to please your father um but if your your father passes away sorry about using this example when you're here <laughs> he's still alive and well he looks very healthy to me thanks um, pete yes. for that <laughs> great news oh dear yeah I'm trying to think of another uh, dig myself out of this hole this is another bit you can just delete <laughs> yeah um, yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. There. So it's imagine it's, your dad just yes, died. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Let's keep on going. It's nice weather, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so those oranges right over there. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Okay, let's say that did happen. Yeah. All right. But um, and so I'm never able to you, but, prove him. But but your father continues to that that desire to please your father continues internally, continues to kind of influence your behavior, what you're doing, and part of what you have to do is, in a sense come to desire things for yourself without this you know constantly trying to please your mother or your father or this internal figure um and and take responsibility for those desires um and, you know in the same way uh in in religion is people have often overcome this kind of fundamentalist god that maybe in america 
they grew up in. It's very, very popular in America. But although they've kind of given up on it, it's internalized. It's still there. That's why people say, I don't believe in hell anymore. Does that mean I'm going to go there? Yeah. Right? The, 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 the belief is still functioning in some kind of way. And for me, you know, Christianity uh, and faith is about kind of like getting rid of that, that notion of the divine, that notion of God, um, and in taking responsibility for your life and in the act of love and in the act of grace and in the act of forgiveness, um, where you fully assume those things, where you do them not because of reward or punishment, you do them because they emanate from you. What Mar Marguerite Perrette says, without why, the action that is without why, in that you actually affirm uh, the depth uh, of what faith is about. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. Do you have a question, Dad? I do, yeah. Um, I'm thinking of your listeners for mm -hmm. a minute. And so if they are, if they're at a point where uh, you have helped them to make the unconscious conscious, you've helped them to get beyond um, being so afraid that they've become numb due to uh, the imperfectness of their life. Okay, so you've, you've brought them out. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about, to put this in a balance, and, and I'm going to use some terminology from Gestalt psychology about maintaining contact. This conversation to me is electric. It's exciting. I'm plugged into you. I'm being rejuvenated because of what you're talking about. I'm going to get tired at a certain point. Yeah. And so for your listeners, help us to see what the balance is of how do I stay in the present? How do I stay connected? How do I be in community? but at the same time respect the limitations that I have as a human being. Yeah, I mean, I'd actually, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about that. Uh, you know, how would you answer that question? Because, you know, this is your profession. I feel like, you know, I, I, I'm interested in the theory of, of it, but, you know, you're working with people in, in practice. Right. So, like, how, how do you think? Well, and I think many of, many of the things that you have already talked about in terms of standing with another individual that they do vicariously get strength, encouragement through being in that community. Uh, but at, at some point you let them, uh, you acknowledge who you are, you're very genuine and real and just letting them know that you have certain kind of limitations. Mm -hmm. uh, something, and I'm kind of go a little bit off on a tangent, but it, it's a word that has come to mean a lot to me is, is the issue about vulnerability that mm -hmm. There is a point where I don't think we're becoming more vulnerable. We're just becoming more aware of our vulnerability. Oh, and yeah. the more that I come at, to peace with that and I recognize others are in the same kind of situation with me, uh, it does re-energize me. It does keep me alive. So I need to keep plugging in and out of community. I need mm -hmm. to be able to say it's okay for me to withdraw. It is okay for me to to, to uh, have some solitary, but I'm going to keep coming back. Yeah, yeah. So no, that's the very balance good. of going right. back, back in and out of yeah. connection. Yeah, that sounds very good. And, and one thing I want to add to that, um, or, or I was inspired by, uh, is the idea that the reason why you, you do this stuff, you, you enter into a community where you can you know, 
talk about these things you can bring the stuff to the surface it's not so that you continue to wallow in it like someone might say okay you got one side which is like you know you run from your pain you go get drunk take drugs go to church whatever to try and forget about it and the other is you stay, stay in a darkened room listening to depressing music with candles dressing in black um, and wallow but see the idea is that the more we run from these things the more they just repeat always they come back they repeat in our relationships they come out all the time but when you're able to kind of face these things you the paradox is you begin to be freed from them you find freedom from these problems and these issues so it's a, and that's why i use the example of the the irish pub because an irish pub is different from a sports bar a sports bar is where you go to get drunk and forget but then all your problems keep returning but an irish pub you have a drink and you talk about your week. You talk about your problems, the joys, the sufferings. The music isn't designed like pop music to make you forget. It's designed to connect you with the deepest issues. Irish singer-songwriters sing about death. They sing about life. They sing about sorrow. And in doing that, you actually find yourself able to move on and move on with your life and not have to compulsively come back to suffering. And the reason why I talk so much about this is not only because it's helpful for individuals, but because it's exactly the same for society. A society that can't look at its history and its violence and its darkness, but somehow tries to pretend that it's perfect, that it's a city on a hill, that everything is someone else's fault, that we're great. They will have symptoms and the symptoms will be racism and sexism there'll be xenophobia it'll come out and it will come out in violence in, in in institutions in the judicial institution in the police force in prisons uh in schools and and those are symptoms and what i believe we have to do is set up communities where we're able to look at the darkness of our own community of our own society of our own country and we're able to kind of like face that bring it to the surface and if enough of us and enough communities are doing that think that it it will help um heal the the society it's good okay so people are listening to this and going i want more pete rollins there's a ton of books <laughs> out there they're like okay i need to go read the books there's a bunch out there i'm not gonna sure i get the titles right because i'll i'll fail um you also have your atheism for lint that you're doing right now yeah. and it's already obviously lint's already going on but they can still jump in yeah in fact once lent's over i'm going to rename it because it's, we did it for lent obviously because it's 40 readings over lent where it's called where we read all the great critiques of religion not to judge them but to let them judge us and there's podcasts there's short readings we do theological atheism as well as philosophical atheism uh, we show that these distinctions are a lot more fluid than we'd think that you know there's a bit of atheism in theism and a bit of theism in atheism and you know so I, it, that's probably a big subject to get into but atheism for land like explores how these are a lot more fluid than we would like to imagine sometimes um, but once it's over, Len, I'm just going to call it a 40-day exploration into the cloud of unknowing. So you can sign up and you'll get all of the readings and you'll get like six hours of me talking, uh, which sounds terrible, <laughs> on uh, on podcast or on video. Um, so yeah, there's that that people can get. Mm -hmm. 
there's lots of free stuff on my blog if you don't want to pay any money most of my stuff you can get for nothing i promise so just go online read and find everything you want there youtube's a place to start it's a wonderful wonderful yeah. friend and the next book you're working on right now we don't know when it, do you know when it's going to be out any idea no because i'm taking my time with it but I'm, I'm hoping maybe by the end of the year okay it'll be out and of course then i've got my big thing is my festival where 40 people come to Belfast. So there's only like four or five tickets left for that this year. But when is that? That's uh, at the end of April. The end of April. Um, and yeah. so they just go to your website and they can find it. Go out. to my website and you'll, you'll find it there under speaking. Okay. Now, one final uh, piece of uh, discussion. Um, took a picture, which we always do for the podcast last time, and it was posted and someone commented that it looked like you were held hostage in the picture. Uh, do you think we can do a picture where you don't look held hostage? Does that time? mean I have to smile? I don't know about don't know, smiling. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of smiling in photos. Okay. <laughs> well, then if you do look like you're held hostage, it's just because you don't like smiling. Yeah. Well, I'm going to smile. I'm going to no, smile. You don't have to smile. Well, I you think... know, here's the thing. Cause people go like, this view must be very depressing. But if I remember what Sartre said, Sartre, someone said to Sartre, you know, that your existential kind of stuff, it must be very depressing. And Sartre said, I've never experienced a day of despair in my life. I thought it was really interesting. Like I have, but connected with the times in my life when I haven't been able to, you know, look at those difficult parts of my life yeah, or yeah. in my community. But when I'm able to, oh my goodness, actually my life is, I feel, oh, it's like, I'm so lucky, you know? So I don't know why I don't smile in photographs. Maybe it's because I want to keep the kind of the melancholic kind of look going. Yeah, it's but, your thing. It's uh, your yeah, vibe. It's my, it's my thing. It's my vibe. But, but actually in, behind that, that solemn face, it, there is a there is a smile and behind that smile is more solemn <laughs> <laughs> okay so since i started uh moving past the what did bonhoeffer calls it uh deus ex machina how oh, do, yeah how yeah. do you say that correctly yeah deus ex machina deus, deus. Deus. deus i say deus but i don't you know you, we, whatever yeah whatever so moving past yeah. the idea that god is yeah. always going to be there to fix things like when whenever the uh the, the narrative looks so straught with that there's no way to get past the conflict, like God's not going to hover down on a cloud and fix it. Mm -hmm. And once, uh, and you've been helpful for me to move past that and to, and to deal with the times that that does show up. Um, I feel like there's more gratitude and joy when you don't expect that because you will inevitably dis be disappointed when you expect God to play the superhero role to come in and save you whenever you're, you're dealing with adversity. So yeah. as much as I joke about like, oh, this is gloom and despair, it really is life-giving to move past an expectation which will inevitably disappoint you. Yeah. I mean, I was talking last, yesterday at a conference, we are talking about theodicy and I was saying that even when I believed in theodicies, um, you know, justifications for why they're suffering. Uh, I would, wouldn't want use them because if, if giving people explanations or giving people a kind of sense of it might get better or some miracle might happen, if that worked, therapists would use it. You know, you'd go into a therapeutic setting and they would give you an explanation for your suffering and you go, thanks very much. You'd pay your money and you'd go, and maybe you'd come in and they'd go, oh, you know what religion are you? And you go like, oh, yeah, I'm Christian. And then, so they would look up a book to go for like Christian theodicies and they would find one that would convince you and then you'd walk away. But actually it doesn't work. Um, in fact, a trip fuller was telling me about a professor who he went to and said, to ask a question about theodicy. He said, you know, how do you, how do you, th what do you think about why they're suffering? And he gave like four answers. He said, oh, here's four different ways of looking at it. And then he said, why did you ask? And Tripp said, well, someone I love has just passed away. And the guy said, why didn't you tell me? He says, forget all that crap. 
He says like, and then he later on that night, he turned up at his house with a bottle of Jack Daniels and a Johnny Cash CD. And he said, let's have a, let's have a glass of Jack Daniels. Let's listen to a bit of Johnny Cash. You know, that's, that's a good answer. And, um, so that's what you go with instead of theodicy. Cause a yeah. second ago you just said, I don't believe in theodicy anymore or the, you know, answers for it or whatever. Yeah, well, that's when, like, the thing is, like, I, I don't, like, I think theodicy is problematic, and we could go into all of the reasons for that. Give, but, can you give even, me 30 seconds on why it's problematic? Because someone's going to listen and go, well, tell me, what, why, why is it problematic? Yeah, well, you could say that one of the earliest critiques of theodicy is in the Bible, like, is, is the book of Job. Yeah, Job's, like, this incredible critique of theodicy. Um, and, and there's a number of reasons. Well, one is, obviously, what we're talking about here, the affectivity of it, but I actually think it comes from a, a, a fundamentally flawed notion of what the word god means um and an understanding of god uh, so you know it brings us to the core idea of theology what do we mean by the word god whenever people hear that word we think we know what it means it's just like we think sometimes we know i think it was socrates said we we we, we know what the word courage means until we start to talk about it and then you kind of realize you don't really know what it means like it's these things become incredibly complicated um in in christianity for example there's there's uh, you can think of God as a being, God as a hyper being, God as the ground of being, God as an event. Now, you know, those won't make any sense if that's the first time you've heard those comments, but those are four different ways of understanding what this, the term God means. I use a different schema uh, as well as that, but that you can understand God uh, in terms of what's called the imaginary, the symbolic or the real. But what I'm saying is not to clarify because that will just make people less clear but more to say there's a whole different pile of ways of thinking of, of of what we mean by this word and theodicy is only makes sense in one particular way of thinking about god and ironically it's a way of thinking about god that many great theologians not just kind of people who are atheists or whatever but many great theologians as well have rejected the, the God that people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris reject is actually the God that many theologians reject as well. Mm -hmm. It's the God that I find problematic. And that's what we've done in Atheism for Lent. We've actually looked at these critiques and gone, are they as negative as we think? Or are they actually um, ways of helping us clear, clear the grounds of a, of a half-blasphemous, superstitious notion of God to an understanding that is deeper and more in line with the Jewish and Christian traditions. Um, so yeah, so that theodicy is connected with a particular notion of God that's very popular in the contemporary church, but ultimately I would uh, critique. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that God would be, God is always there for you. God will take care of, and, and by there for you, I mean God is there to remove all struggle from your life. God will make everything good, and everything's going to work out in the end. And, and ultimately, yeah, even more than that, and by the way, this is where I, I could play a conservative card here because conservative uh, theologians like uh, uh, Karl Barth um, or even a Merrill Westphal, a philosopher who's alive today, they, they also go like the problem with our understanding of God as a, a being is God becomes like a, just a bigger version of ourselves. Yeah. So it's anthropology. That just like people's dogs look a bit like them, people's gods look a bit like them. So it's not just the God who fixes everything. God's a, it's kind of a God who, who cares about our football team, who cares about our country more than other countries. Who, who, this God who kind of, in a sense, strangely dislikes the same people we dislike, likes the same people we like. This God who has basically the same beliefs 
that we do. And you know, there's that story of this uh, this accident that happens where this fundamentalist preacher um, and this mystic and this evangelical pastor like they have this accident uh, in this junction. The we fund the, the mystics on his bike, the big guy, the fundamentalist is in his hummer and the evangelicals in a little mini they crash they all die go to heaven and anyway they're sitting outside and as we all know in revelation it says you, know, you have to have an interview with jesus to see if you can get in right so yeah. they're sitting there in the waiting room and jesus comes out actually st peter comes out and says to the to the mystic you know come on in jesus wants to interview you goes in he's in there for about 10 minutes he comes out and he goes i knew i was wrong <laughs> and he's laughing to himself and he walks into heaven and it's, then it's the evangelical preacher's turn he goes in with his bible and he's in there for about half an hour and he comes out and goes oh how could i have got it so wrong it's so depressing and he kind of walks in and then the fundamentalist preacher goes in and his bible is very well underlined lots of color coding the works right yeah. he's in there for about an hour the door opens and jesus comes out and says how could i have been so wrong <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know this, this oh, yeah great. So, you know, if, if God disagrees with me, it's because God's wrong. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although, ironically, there's a different way of reading that for another time. But um, the, what, that, th this is the, cr the critique that, like bon that Karl Barth takes. In fact, he says Feuerbach, who was the one who said theology is anthropology. You know, when you talk about God, you're talking about yourself with a raised voice. Karl Barth was the one who <laughs> said, not that's wrong. Karl Barth said, he's absolutely right. That's what we're doing. Now, then Bart went on to say, talk about revelation. But he was very keen to go, you know, when humans talk about these matters, we tend to think we're talking about the absolute when really we're talking about a, a bigger version of ourselves. Like when Homer Simpson prays at one of the episodes, he says, I don't know if you exist. I don't know if you can hear me. I don't know if what they say about you is true. But Superman, if you're there, can you help me? Right? <laughs> you know, and it's basically Bart saying, that's what we do. And, and so even if you, so whether you're conservative or not, you can actually go with this idea that God as a being ultimately is like talking about ourselves in a loud voice, which is what Karl Barth says. Um, and then, and, and then take it from there. But so at, once you accept that, the question is, okay, then what do we do then? That's not where theology ends. That's where theology begins. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's people say, oh, that's the end of theology. No, 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 no. That's the beginning. That's where my PhD starts. My PhD was on this. It's like once you take Freud, Marx, Feuerbach, Nietzsche seriously, I know theology doesn't end. Ha ha! Now it starts. Yeah. yeah. So in the beginning, God made us in God's image, and we in turn return the favor return and the make field, God yeah. in our image. And that's where, like, once you put that on the table, that's when you start understanding what theology is. Once you acknowledge that's the filter that we're using to see who God is. Absolutely. Now, now and I, I should just say, no, I, I don't go with where Bart goes with that um, or with West Byron. So I go a different direction, but I want to respect that tradition that they go in and go, you know, they take it seriously. Mm -hmm. I think the only position that I'm concerned about is the one that doesn't take seriously that critique. But if you take it seriously, there's various ways to go. And even though, as I say, I wouldn't go with Bart, um, and where he goes, I, I very much respect the fact that he takes seriously the critique of God as a being. And if anybody wants to read an article that critiques this, uh, one of the things we did in the Atheism for Lent is an essay by Anthony Flew. I think it's called The Divine Gardener, or um, you'll find it if you type that in. It's a very short philosophical essay. It's the most read philosophical essay in the world, supposedly, hmm. which means like more than 100 people have read it. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, it critiques the idea of God as a being 
Um, now, Anthony Flew feels, just like a lot of the new atheists, that that's the end of the story. But, but actually, um, you read that and you go, okay, now we can really get into you know, a really interesting discussion. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I should tell you the parable very quickly, actually. I want yeah. parables. This, yeah, this, this is not. This is a, a, a parable by John Wisdom, I think his name was, but Anthony Flew uh, retells it. It's just very simple. Two gardeners come to a clearing in a forest, and some flowers are there. Some look like they're growing really well, and some, you know, are dying. But one of the gardeners says, look, there's a, there's a gardener comes at night and must tend to this patch because some of the flowers are doing really well. And the other gardener says, well, I haven't seen anybody. The first one says, yes, well, he's invisible, so you can't see him. And so the first one goes, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll set up an electric fence so that, you know, it'll, it'll electrify, we'll know that he's there. And he goes, oh, well, no, he also can walk through fences. He says, well, we'll get bloodhounds that can smell the scent of this gardener. And he goes, oh, well, no, this gardener has no scent. And, and eventually the other gardener, in exasperation, says, what's the difference between your invisible gardener without scent, without smell, without physicality, and no gardener at all? And Flew says, you know, theologians get to the point where they're always qualifying, qualifying, qualifying the death of a thousand qualifications. They get to a point where actually effectively their claim about God is no different from the claim of someone who doesn't believe in God. Uh, and you know, when you read it, and if you read it non-defensively and you just read it and think about it, you go, oh my goodness, yeah, that's an interesting comment. Um, but, but at that point then, what a lot of people don't realize is that theologians, really, really good theologians, have have wrestled with that for a long time, and have come up with really interesting other ways of understanding the divine. Not that they're right, my goodness, no, but just letting people know that there are other understandings, and um, it's exciting to delve into them. More exciting than watching the crap that's on TV most of the time. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but not more exciting than listening to this podcast. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Pete. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>